Today's scripture is Mark 9, 1 through 13. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And the cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And as they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. All right. Good morning. (laughs) Uh, I don't even know if I introduced myself earlier. That was rude of me. My name's Cameron. I am one of the pastors here, and it's super exciting to be with you all. I'm just so grateful for this church. I just love you all. I love worshiping with you. It's such a joy every week. Um, just need to say that. Um, but that's not what I'm. That's not what we're talking about today. Uh, that'd be fun, though. Um, I have a question to start things off, which is this: Have you ever encountered genuine glory? Like glory, like something majestic, something that was kind of category-breaking in its largeness, its heaviness, its weight, its beauty. I'm sure we all have a couple times in life. A few that come to mind for me, one that's sort of out there in nature. Nature can often give us these kinds of things, creation. Um, My wife and I, uh, one time, actually, I don't know if you were on this hike or not. You can nod at me if you were. but we would take students, we would take students uh, uh, in Arkansas to uh, Colorado for like summer camp. And inevitably there would always be uh, a couple of hike options as part of the camp. So we'd go hike the mountains, including like Pikes Peak, like the really serious hikes and climbs. Um, if you know me very well, you know that I am, I'm not an outdoorsman by any means. I, I think I may have coined this term a few years ago. I, I, I was talking about this at a Door of Hope sermon. I'm an indoorsman, okay? <laughs> I'm, I'm a book guy, a movie guy, a uh, coffee guy. Um, not an outside guy. I like to be active. I, I love playing basketball, stuff like that. But like outdoor adventures, I'm useless. I'm useless. So, I remember my small group of guys was like, we gotta do the big hike, we gotta do the big hike. And like the other leaders of the small group were like, we're not doing that. And so it kind of fell on me to jump in and I, I heroically said, all right guys, I, don't, I wanna make sure no kids get lost up here. So I'll pull up the rear of the group 
you know. <laughs> so, so I made sure I could be the last person, but what inevitably happened was just them getting to new spots on the hike and waiting like 10 extra minutes for me to get there. But, you know, it was hard for me. It was, it was really hard. It was really intense, but there's something to it. You work hard for a great reward, and it's so satisfying just getting up to the top. I don't even remember what peak it was. Kind of getting this vista of the Colorado mountains, seeing the immensity of what was there. Um, it was like a very, very cloudy day, um, but with the sun like breaking through, and it was cold, but it was, it was just so lush and beautiful and wonderful. And I remember like when we, ha- when we started working our way down from the peak, uh, the, the guy that was kind of leading the hike was like, hey, those are storm clouds. And then basically there was like this huge snow and thunderstorm that we thought we were going to avoid that came early. And so then it became this like mad dash down the mountain, literally kids like sliding down like these snowy patches of mountain. And even that was like part of, it's in my memory of like this glorious, like transcendent, like, like just, just touching something, getting a glimpse of something just beyond reach. In that case, the majestic creative power of God making these amazing things that we get to enjoy. You know, honestly, as, as dopey as some of it is, like the modern like rock or pop, even pop concert is sometimes that. Like, I'm, I don't know, Justin Bieber. I've never been to a Justin Bieber concert. But there's something too, like the, all the technology and the lights and the sound and the stage and the dancing, whatever, and the loudness of the music that just can capture that kind of same dynamic. Like there's something, even if I hate this music, there is something here that's so big and so immense and awesome. And sometimes it's not even something big. I, I think one of the greatest moments of glory for me was whenever my first son was born like seeing new life be brought into the world. Um, I don't think I've ever had as emotional reaction to anything. I'm just speechless, blown away by um, the goodness of God, the creativity of God, the beauty of God, and the beauty of this family that he had gifted me with. What about for you? Where have you seen it? Where have you seen glory? Well, glory, this idea of weightiness, value, immensity, is kind of the, one of the central ideas of this passage. I don't know if you, you caught that or not. Um, but for the last two weeks, we've, been in this, we've mentioned we've been in this turning point in the gospel according to Mark, uh, where Jesus has been revealing his true identity and its implications. And just before chapter 9, uh, Jesus had confirmed for his disciples what maybe they had been wondering about or, or, or beginning to piece together, that yes, I'm the Messiah. P- Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. And Jesus accepts the title, but then he talks about the fact that, actually, yes, but I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. And then as Josh wonderfully taught for us last week, not only am I going to suffer and die, but if you actually want to follow me, it's going to entail suffering and dying for you too. You're going to have to find your cross and carry it. And so these, you know, that's a major curveball that Jesus threw for them because they were perhaps comfortable again with this idea of Jesus as the Messiah, but he's not just the Messiah, he's also the suffering servant. And his kingdom was going to be instituted by being betrayed, rejected, by suffering and by dying before he'd be raised to life again. And the same would be true for his disciples. To follow Jesus, they too would have to suffer. They'd have to carry their crosses. They would have to lose their lives. 
Jesus has been teaching them that in God's economy, in this world, things that you wouldn't expect to go hand in hand do go in hand in hand. Namely, glory and suffering. Greatness and servanthood. Life and death in incredibly interesting ways, surprising ways. So it's possible after that conversation that Jesus has with the disciples that they were just incredibly discouraged, right? Like, you could imagine this roller coaster. He's the Messiah! And he says, we're going to go to a cross. Like, it's, whip, it's emotional whiplash. So it's possible, and Josh talked about this, if we can show verse 1. He, he ended his sermon with this because it's just such a perfect transition. Um, it's possible that the statement in 9-1 where Jesus basically says, hey, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom after it's come with power, um, was meant to be an encouragement and a comfort. Like, it's like beautiful, amazing revelation, and then really scary revelation. He's like, but hang on, there's more. And also here's another little note of encouragement. You're going to see some amazing things that are going to give you the courage to actually follow through with, with what I'm asking of you. Um, Sensing the heaviness, knowing that all of us mere humans need to have, like we need to have our fears and insecurities assuaged from time to time. I think what Jesus is doing here is making a reassuring promise. Yes, all this is really hard, but look, some of you are going to see the glory. You're going to see it. Some of you aren't going to die before you see it. And this has been, that, that verse 1 has been interpreted a number of different ways. There's, there's cases to be made for what exactly Jesus is referring to here. But as Josh said last week, um, we think probably the best option is that they're going to see Jesus in his glorified body after the resurrection, seeing his power over death. Uh, and, you know, even that itself is a preview of what's going to happen when he comes back in full at the second coming. But probably he has in mind here, you're going to see my resurrection power. Um, but nonetheless, I think, I think the very next story that we go into in verse 2, this transfiguration story, if you've ever heard it described that way, um, it's, it's a preview of that. It's like, yeah, we're going to see some amazing things, but here, Peter, James, and John, come with me. I'm going to show you something. I know this is all really scary, but you need to see something. It's really going to change things for you. I think that's what's happening here. So, they go up on a mountain. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. That's the inner core of his disciples. We've already seen Peter pull those three aside to go and heal, heal Jairus' daughter. And these are the three disciples that Jesus is going to take with him to the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he's betrayed. So the inner core of disciples go with Jesus. And they go up on a mountain. And if, you're, if, if you've read through the Old Testament much, you should expect, at, along with anyone who's like a Jew, you know, familiar with the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, when God does stuff up on mountains, it's always huge. The mountain is often the place of, of dramatic spiritual experience. But especially, if, think of all the stories of Moses at Sinai. Moses invited, or God invited Moses up several times on the mountain to reveal incredible truth to him, to give him the law. And God's glory, remember these stories? God's glory would manifest physically as a cloud and engulf Moses. And then when Moses would come down, having encountered God, what would happen? He'd shine. His skin would glow. It would radiate leftovers like a moon reflecting the glory of God he had just seen. 
So a great little study. We don't have time for it, um, but would be to just go and read this week Exodus 19 through 40 and see these stories of, of, of Moses going up and down the mountain of what God, and what God does up there with him. See how many parallels you can pick out to this story. They're all over the place. But simply put, if, if God, or Jesus in this case, takes people up on a mountain in dramatic fashion, you can expect fireworks, spiritually. And that's what happens. As we read on, he was transfigured. He was metamorph- metamorphosized before them. He was changed dramatically before them. And what did it look like? His clothes became radiant, intensely white. And like this little detail that Mark adds, it's like so white that like you could ne- it could never be mistaken for just really good laundry, <laughs> right? Like as no one on earth could bleach them. I don't care how good you are with your bleach. It's not that white. This is a super, clearly supernatural appearance. I don't know what the brightest thing you've ever seen was, but multiply it. Multiply it. This is incomprehensible brightness. And then, there appeared to Jesus, so, so they're up on the mountain, his appearance changes, he's shining brightly forth, his clothes, and then, Moses and Elijah appear, and they were talking with Jesus. And a little detail, like, it's very, like, to me, this is one of those things that, that validates the, I, the, like, the seriousness and the trustworthiness of the eyewitness nature of the Bible. Peter, who is probably recounting this to Mark, doesn't know what they were talking about. If you were fabricating this story, I think you would instantly go like, and Moses and Elijah said, uh, worship Jesus or <laughs> whatever. Um, but they don't know. They couldn't hear. And just imagine that little huddle. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus chatting. What were they talking about? We don't know. We don't know, but they're there. Two of the most revered and significant figures in the Old Testament are there alongside Jesus. So, crystal clear, right, what's happening? (laughs) No. (laughs) What is going on? What is this? If you're confused, you're not alone. You're in good company, because look at Peter. Peter jumps in, as he always does. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, also, it's kind of funny. He's never called Jesus rabbi so far up to this point in the Gospel of Mark. It's kind of a formalized teacher title. I, don't, I almost imagine him like trying to impress Moses and Elijah. Uh, rabbi. <laughs> and Jesus like, you don't call me rabbi. What are you talking about? Um, he says, rabbi, it's good that we are here. That's a true statement. That's a true statement. It is good. He says, let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And you might think, oh, that's interesting, but verse 6 makes it clear. He didn't know what to say. <laughs> he didn't know what to say. He was just afraid. They were terrified. So Peter here, what's he doing? Well, he's, he's afraid. And what Peter's doing is what many of us do when we're uncomfortable. We don't know what to say, so we just fill the space. You ever do that? You're just like, I, I got I to say something. I got to do something. We spring in to alleviate the tension or the awkwardness. 
And actually, a tent or a tabernacle is, is, is an understandable response. He's, Peter's probably picking up on the Exodus imagery, like, okay, glory of God up on a mountain. Uh, I think Moses, I'm thinking, oh yeah, God told Moses to set up the tents that could house the presence of God, and we could set up a system uh, where we could worship him, and it'll be really rigorous, and we can control that it's not treated frivolously or whatever. Um, if you don't know the story, the tabernacle, those tents were the precursor to the temple that was eventually built. So Peter might be saying, we need to set up a tabernacle and rituals to honor the glory that we're seeing right here. That's what you do when you see the glory of God. Or he might be saying, we need to set up a tabernacle to house the glory so we can preserve it. Like, let's camp here. Let's not leave. Let's protect this moment. We never want to leave this mountaintop. Maybe both. Either way, Peter's response is to just start doing something. He's afraid. He's nervous. Let's do something. And I relate to this because I am an emotional fixer. Um, let me be very clear. I'm not a physical fixer. Uh, again, I, like if we were in like an apocalyptic doomsday scenario and you're like trying to fight for survival, you don't want me. Okay? If, like ever, if the internet goes down and electricity goes down, you're like, I've got to like huddle up with the community. Don't come see, search me out. I will only be dead weight. I'll be the one that you're like, if it turns to having to eat one of us, we'll eat Cameron. <laughs> and you can test how good of a sacrificial pastor I am. I'll, will I lay down my life for the sheep? <laughs> this has really gotten weird. Um, don't eat me, please. <laughs> so I'm not that kind of fixer. I'm not good with my hands. I'm really not good at fixing emotional things either, but my, what I'm trying to get at is, um, like, for example, when, when my wife needs me, when she needs me to listen and to empathize, like, so often my response is just to be like, oh, where, what's the problem? Here's the problem. Okay, I'll just do this thing, or we can do this. Here, here's the Band-Aid to fix it. And you, I just skip over. I've probably done that with some of you. I just skip over the, what's actually necessary, which is connecting which is listening, which is like coming into an understanding of like what she or you or he or whoever is going through. Just jumping right to, okay, here, let's just do something and by, bypassing what's actually crucial in this, in this really delicate moment. So often we do this. We miss out on connection even with God and our refusal to stop doing stuff and to just be with him, to just, just appreciate and soak in uh, the opportunity we have to commune and connect. Uh, some of us are reading the book. We, we started a book club. Um, there's two groups going uh, on the book, Prayer in the Night by Tish Harrison Warren. So much of that book is just about finding the space to slow down and be with God, to see how he's at work, even in the mundane things, to let yourself slow down from the busyness enough to just be aware of what he's up to, to commune with him in prayer. It's a lesson I desperately need. I'm guessing you do too. And Peter needs it. Because Peter's impulse is to get to work, to fix, to act. Here's, I don't know what to do, so let's, let's make tents. Let's do something. When he just needs to be able to receive the grace of this incredible moment that Jesus has blessed him with. But let's give Peter some credit. What's going on must have been super confusing. I think it's confusing. It's, there's so many weird things about this story. But in his grace, God moves to make it clear. 
We keep reading. Verse 7, And a cloud overshadowed them. Again, straight out of Exodus. And a voice came out of the cloud. We saw this voice early in Mark, chapter 1, the baptism of Jesus. This is the booming voice of God the Father speaking from heaven into creation. And he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they saw, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. So here's where we can put together what is happening up on this mountain. The cloud of glory descends on them. The physical manifestation of the splendor, the majesty, the weightiness of God in creation. And then the booming voice of God comes out of that cloud explicitly and implicitly declaring Jesus to be a couple of things. First, his beloved son, the son that God loves. That little phrase tells us God loves the Son and has from eternity past. And one of the most foundational things about the God of the Bible is that He is love. He is love. He has existed in an eternal love relationship between the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. It's just who he is. Before there was even a person created to, to, to love, within the Godhead, there was this eternal relationship of love. And God lets us into this eternal mystery by saying, this is my son whom I love. Secondly, he says a command. This is my son whom I love, my beloved son. Command. Listen to him. Listen to him. Notice, God doesn't say, listen to Moses. God doesn't say, listen to Elijah. God does, right here, God doesn't even say, listen to me. He says, listen to him. Listen to Jesus. The booming voice of God from heaven says, listen to Jesus. This is be- not because Moses didn't have actual revelation from God or Elijah. This isn't to throw out the Old Testament. Uh, It's certainly not to say that God the Father is not worth listening to, of course. Don't hear me say that. But (laughs) he's saying, listen to Jesus, because Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Word who was with God and who is God. To look upon Jesus is to look upon God enfleshed. To listen to Jesus is to listen to God. He is the divine, beloved Son of God, the one who has the authority to speak for God. Aha. So now we can look back at the story, maybe, and put the details together, see what's going on. Supernaturally gleaming white clothes and appearance from Jesus. We see that he's greater than his forebears, Moses and Elijah, two of the great figures of the Old Testament. Moses, who delivered the law. Elijah, one of the great prophets who got in that dramatic power encounter with the prophets of Baal. These two are great. They're wonderful. We need them. But Jesus is greater. They vanish. And it's Jesus only in this story. It's a beautiful little detail. 
Jesus is greater than Moses and Elijah representing the law and the prophets, that shorthand for the authority of the whole Old Testament. The point here is not that the Old Testament doesn't matter, it's that the whole story of redemptive history found in the Old Testament culminates in Jesus. So Moses and Elijah, they're there with him. It's like passing of the torch moment, then they vanish, only Jesus. This is loaded with significance. Jesus is the very Son of God who is God himself. And he's the authoritative one whom God the Father points to and says, listen. So I'm not going to move the chalkboard, but we've got a mountain peak here. And it's very interesting the way Mark has done this. And it's full of meaning and significance. But we've got this mountain with the glory of God radiating off of Jesus. And this is the center point, as we said, chapter 8 into 9. This is the center point. Oh, that's ugly. Center point of the gospel according to Mark. And the whole thing started. I mean, Mark declared for us that Jesus is the Son of God at the very beginning. But then the story began. And yes, we had the baptism, the declaration of who Jesus is. But then the story of Mark, the first eight chapters, has just been this ministry around the region of Galilee around the sea, and they've ventured into, you know, Gentile territory, so on and so forth, and it's been kind of the circular ministry, and then we've gotten to this point now where literally they go up at the highest peak, and it's the center point of the gospel, the gospel according to Mark, and it's revealed. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of Man. He is the suffering servant. You know what? He's even more than that. He's the Son of God. He's the Son of God. The one, the one whom is, it's like his flesh is like this, <laughs> like, it's genuine flesh, it's real flesh. He's fully man. But you, if you get a peek beyond the veil, you see the radiance of this Jesus shining out because he's not just a guy. He's not just the promised king, although he is. He's God in flesh. They get a glimpse of that glory right here. And it's very interesting. We're going to see as we go through the Gospel of Mark. What happens when they come, maybe I should draw it this way. What happens when they come down the mountain is it starts a journey. Remember, he just started talking about the cross for the first time in this center section. He said, I'm going to die and I'm going to raise from the dead. It starts a journey down to the cross. And Mark barely even includes a resurrection story barely includes a resurrection story. So this, like the the gospel according to Mark is designed so powerfully and and what we're meant to see here is this is the mount, this is, this is every, this is the center of the book, this is the chief truth that they want to, that Mark wants to communicate to us. Don't miss it. Yes, he's the Messiah. Yes, he's the suffering servant. Yes, he's the son of man. He's God though. He's God. This is the mountain peak of the gospel according to Mark. Literally and literarily, theologically, this is the moment of the revelation of the glory of God in Christ. Here we see Jesus is not just Messiah, King, the glorious Son of God. Listen to how the other scripture writers put this. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. John was there. John was there, writing later. Same John, 
we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 8, 57 records Jesus saying, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Listen to this. Colossians 1, 15 through 20, Apostle Paul writing, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He's before all things. In him, all things hold together. Jesus. Colossians 2. 9 through 10, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Christ you have been brought to fullness. He's the head over every power and authority. Hebrews 1, 3, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18, Peter, Peter writing, Peter was there. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made it known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I well please. Peter never forgot this moment, huh? We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. We could go on and on. I love the way theologian Jared Wilson uh, put this, reflecting on this passage. He said, what this passage is getting at here is that Jesus is the great high priest, surpassing all priests. He's the good shepherd, surpassing all shepherds. He's the great judge, surpassing all judges. He's the king of kings, surpassing all kings. He's the Lord of lords, surpassing all earthly masters. He's the bridegroom, surpassing all husbands. He's the, ra he's the rabbi Christ, surpassing all preachers. He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, surpassing all the best of everybody ever. It's good that Peter could, who am, guys, who do you say that I am? It's good that Peter said, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. But that ain't the half of it. That ain't the half of it. Peter, James, and John would get to see the divine glory of Christ in the flesh. They were eyewitnesses. They were commanded by the Father to listen to him, to obey him, to trust him. And now, that command comes to you. We've been in Mark a year and a half. I know we talk about it every week, but in the weight of all that we've been le learning about Jesus, we've seen him heal, as we've seen him teach, as we've seen how he treats the outcasts, as we've seen how he has compassion on the crowds, as we've seen all these little things, and now we get a divinely inspired account of this moment in history where he, is, he was transfigured before them, his glory shone forth. The command, the burden falls on you to listen to him. To listen to him. And here I pause to ask the question, I, I, I ask this seriously, like what are the alternatives? Uh, of course, there are, there are plenty of people who reject Jesus for alternate religious systems or, or alternate ideologies uh, or philosophies uh, or even just simple deification of the self. I'm going to let my desires rule. And for Christians, 
If you've been self-consciously following Jesus for years, each of our moments where we sin, where, where, we, where we decide to go a different direction, these are in some way versions of this same rejection, even if just for a moment choosing some other belief or impulse or idol over the glorious Son of God, refusing to listen. But my question is, is there anywhere else to find what this Jesus offers? This mix of goodness and power. In our world, if you've got power, it's not long before you lose your goodness. 99.99999, is that? Are the odds better than that? 99.9999% of the time. Is there anywhere else to find a God that comes close? Though he had every right to remain at arm's length, though he had supplied everything for his people, and they had rejected him and made a mess of their relationships in this world, he says, I'm coming in to become one of them, to dwell amongst them, to get sick with them, to be the subject of violence with them and abuse with them, to be hated alongside them. A God that comes close into human flesh, closer than imaginable, and dies to rescue us. Is there anywhere else who, who, to find someone who holds all of the values that on our bed? I know there's a million different value systems out there, but I think in so many ways... In so many ways, you have to ask this question, is there anyone else who on our best days holds all the values that, that, that in our deepest places we acknowledge are crucial? That he holds them in perfect harmony without distortion. There are days, friends, where we cry out for justice. And we should, because God is just. And when injustice is perpetrated in this world, it's right to hate it. But when it's our friend, our tribe, ourselves, we don't want justice. We want rule bending. We want someone to turn the other way. We want someone to understand the larger context that got us to this place. We want mercy. And you know what? God gives mercy. <laughs> Though we withhold it from others and demand it for ourselves, he offers it freely to everyone. But he never compromises his justice. He never compromises his love. All these things that we're like, we can't sort them out in this world. He does. Perfectly. Without compromise. Without being corrupted. There's no one who can bribe Jesus. There's no suitcase full of $100 bills large enough to corrupt him. He's the God of the universe. He's eternal. He sits on the throne. He's good. He's good. And I know, we're, I mean, we're not getting into any of the many challenges and questions to, okay, well, was Jesus real? Did he, how do we know this story like this happened? Of course, those questions are out there. If you're having them, you should be processing them in community. Shoot me an email. But I start with this basic question. Who else would you want? 
Who else would you want to sit on the throne of humanity than this Jesus that we've read about in Mark 1 through 9? Is there anyone else? I submit there's not. You know what God says? Listen to him. Listen to him. So that's the peak. And as we go to verse 9, very briefly we look at this. There's a lot we could unpack here, but we'll keep it short. But they were coming down the mountain. They're coming down the mountain. Probably this took place on Mount Hermon, which is in, in, in northern Israel. And this descent down the mountain is followed by a descent south to Jerusalem and to the cross. But they came down the mountain. And Jesus, as he does, he charged them to tell no one what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So he, there he is talking about death again. This is whiplash. We just saw the divine glory on the mountain. He says, yeah, I'm going to die. Don't you remember that? So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. It's like, you know, it's like, he's got to be speaking in metaphors, right? Like, there's no way he's going to die. What, what, is he, what is he talking about here? And so they asked him, they asked him, um, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He says, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come. They did whatever they, to him whatever they pleased, as is written of him. So they had the ultimate spiritual mountaintop experience. I don't care what an amazing experience you have, you know, this, this, uh, in this life, and I hope that you have many with God. But it's hard to imagine topping this one. Hard to imagine. They had the ultimate spiritual high, and there's a lesson here, even in this little detail, that in this life, we always have to come down from the mountain eventually. There are peaks, there are plateaus, there are valleys. And we cannot avoid those valleys. The Son of God didn't. The disciples argue with him about his death, but this time it's more sly. Because, you know, last time someone was, like, challenging the idea of Jesus dying, he got called Satan, right? <laughs> Peter, you're not dying on my watch, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So now they've got to play a little more slyly. In the Old Testament book of Malachi, it was prophesied Elijah would return before the day of the Lord, that great and powerful day when God's going to come back, put everything right, and the way Tim Keller puts it is that he's, he, he says, the disciples are saying, hey, we just saw Elijah up there. We just saw Elijah. The day of the Lord must be near, right? Doesn't that mean we're kind of in the end game? So what's all this death talk is, is the implication. Elijah's here. And Jesus agrees that Elijah must come first. That was prophesied. That must come to pass. But in fact, Elijah did come. And we see here, and in, in the, the parallel accounts make it clear, he's talking about John the Baptist. Not that John the Baptist was reincarnated Elijah, but John the Baptist came in the spirit, in the role of Elijah as the forebearer to the Messiah. John began the process of preparing the way for Jesus, but this Elijah was killed for his faithfulness. Elijah wasn't killed because he did something wrong. He was killed because he did everything right. 
at least with regard to his, his mission here. And so too would Jesus be. After this dramatic display of power and glory on the mountain, maybe the disciples had hopes that this suffering thing that Jesus was just talking about, ah, maybe, maybe there's a plan B. Maybe we can avoid that. But no, they have to live with the emotional whiplash as Jesus reminds them that John suffered, Jesus will suffer, and you're going to suffer too. And that doesn't mean I'm not God, doesn't mean I'm not Messiah. It's how I prove it. It's how I prove it. So that's the story. That's the story. It's an amazing story. It's a confusing story. But it's a beautiful story. So I, I leave you with the command, that the, the only command in this passage comes from the, the, the voice of God that says, listen to Jesus. So I, I say to you, li- listen to Jesus. I say it to myself. Let his vision, his vision for and his definitions of the true, the beautiful, and the good become yours. Let his vision of the abundant, healthy life become yours. Let his commitment to truth and righteousness and justice, yes, alongside grace and mercy, (laughs) forgiveness become yours. Let his understanding that genuine greatness is found in humble servitude become yours. Let his willingness to bear the scorn of the world for the sake of truth-telling and genuine neighbor love become yours. Very pragmatically, do you have means and time set aside to abide in him? to pursue a relationship with him, to know him, to grow in your understanding of him, but please don't let it stop at understanding, head knowledge. Understanding, yes, but also into intimate relationship with him. Are you pursuing him in any meaningful way? Do you make time to do these things in community as well, where you can be sharpened by other believers as he intended? If the answer is no, there's grace. But the invitation still remains. Will you listen to him? And as a first and most important act of listening, will you receive from him the forgiveness and grace that he supplied to you through his death on the cross? This is super fascinating. The word for bleach or whiten that's used in verse 3 to describe the incredible purity and power of Jesus' appearance when he's transfigured, It only occurs one other time in the whole Bible, whole New Testament. One other time. And it's it's there to refer to the robes of the slain believers in Revelation 7, made gleaming by washing them in the blood of Jesus. There's a promise, friends, for anyone who would trust, repent, and follow Jesus. His glory becomes your glory. His purity becomes your purity. His righteousness becomes your righteousness. Even if in this life his suffering becomes our suffering, which we're all but promised, I think we are just promised that that will happen, his glory will be shared with his children. And so we end with this quote from the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Philippian church. He says this, Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clinched or held onto. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God was highly, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is who he is. And this is who he is. Listen to him. Let's pray.